Oh, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Joel, and it's my wife, Danielle, and uh, we've been uh, coming to Love Chapel Hill for about six months now, and um, we just love this place. And, yeah, we love you guys. <laughs> Anyways, we uh, moved here, Chapel Hill, about two and a half years ago, and uh, when we left uh, Durham, where we were at, we uh, left a great home church, and so we kind of left praying and asking God where God could bring us, not just to, to a church community that we could grow from uh, in a relationship with Jesus, but a place that loved, like truly loved and cared for the community and the people, the lives that they touched. Mm-hmm. And we knew in our very first visit here that something was very special. Mm-hmm. And uh, after a few Sundays, we kind of figured out what that special was, and it was amazing. It was, it was uh, we realized that what this place provided was a genuine love for people, not just from the leadership, but from everybody, you know, in, in the entire community. And we just knew that was something so real. And unfortunately, in our society, a genuine love seems kind of rare, you know. So it was like, this place is special. And it, it wasn't a systematic love where um, people did loving acts through uh, a schedule or a uh, process or, or, you know, or systems. That there was just a true, genuine love just in everything and everything everybody did. And we just knew that this was this is the place that God had answered our prayers for. So we're just so thankful for this church. And and everything that you guys provide and, and just love each other genuinely. And I just encourage you to keep doing that. That is so special. Um, but in the spirit of that, in the spirit of love, you know, we're going to celebrate this amazing season of Advent. And we love each other, but we love because he loved us first. That's right. And in that reason, we want to celebrate the Advent this morning and reading a scripture. And uh, we're going to light the candle this morning. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Let's give it up for Joel and Danielle. Gilson, your mic is going to be right here. Okay, awesome. Great. Great. What do you think of when you think of Mary? This is a person that's central to the story this time of year. This is one of the times of the year where we really focus in on her as, as Protestants, as those who, are, who have come out of the Protestant Reformation. We don't quite put the same kind of focus on Mary as other traditions do, especially Catholicism. And in fact, as part of that protest movement, right, that comes out of Catholicism, that's an attempt to reclaim the heart of the gospel, an attempt to reorient in the truth of the gospel. Sometimes we have overcorrected in the way that we speak about Mary. We hardly ever talk about her except this time of year. She plays a key role 
in the nativity scene. We dress our kids up like her, right? That's like the, that's like the, the role you want, okay? But that's about it. That's about the only mention that we ever give to this really central and important figure. What do you think of when you think of Mary? Throughout Christian history, uh, the, the character of Mary, this figure of, of Mary has launched uh, a lot of different artwork. And most of the time in the artwork, she is presented as like this stained glass saint, right? That This one-dimensional work of art oftentimes she's pictured with the halo and and holding baby jesus with the halo okay and so this real saintly pure holy kind of image that surrounds her occasionally you'll get somebody who goes a little crazy on the artwork and comes up with something like this oh not that one not that one These are all different options. Keep rolling through it. Yep, it's beautiful. Keep rolling through. Keep rolling. <laughs> I, I love that. Right, I came across that this week in looking for pictures of Mary. Great to see Mary on keyboard and Joseph on vocals. <laughs> on this year's Christmas stamp. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do that, all right? But the Gospels, as we read the story of Mary in the Gospels, the the Gospels do not cast her as a one-dimensional work of art. The Gospels give us a different kind of character, even in the mention of her name. When we first hear her name mentioned here, about this angel, Gabriel, who's sent to this nowhere town of Nazareth to speak to a virgin who's pledged to be married to Joseph and the virgin's name was Mary. The virgin's name was Mary. Names mean something in scripture. People are named with purpose in scripture and oftentimes their names give us a hint of what kind of role they're going to play in this story. We talked just a a couple of weeks ago about Zechariah, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Two people who in their old age felt like they had been forgotten by God. And yet we remembered that every time Zechariah heard his name called by someone, every time he introduced himself to someone, he would remember what the name Zechariah means. And it means Yahweh remembers. Yahweh remembers. And we see the way that plays into the story as the angel appears to him as well and says, Zechariah, do not be afraid. Yahweh remembers. Your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. And Zechariah and Elizabeth are are told they're going to become the parents of John, who becomes John the Baptist, John the trailblazer, John the pioneer, preparing the way for the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah. Names mean something in Scripture. The name Jesus, as we're told, The name Jesus means the Lord saves. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. He fulfills the meaning of that. The name Mary can mean rebellion. Rebellion. Of all of the things that we associate with Mary, of all of the images that come to mind when we say her name, most of the time it is these stained glass images, right? Holy, pure 
this kind of thing. But, but the name Mary can mean rebellion. There's got to be something to that. What is the purpose behind that? Oh, good call, Justin. Thank you. Wow. All right. Now we kind of want to watch what's going to happen here. <laughs> the Advent flame has gone wild. <laughs> There's some imagery in that, too. It's okay if you, if, if you blow it out. Jesus knows we love him. <laughs> That's one way to get people to pay attention during a sermon right there. <laughs> Keeping watch. Are we good? Okay, awesome. Woo! At the same point today, we have a leak in the roof that has been happening. So let's hope that the... The leak doesn't put out the Advent candles, okay? All right. So the name Mary can mean rebellion. And, there, and then there's so much in that. There's so much hiding in that. It's not something we normally associate with her. In fact, we think of her in the opposite kind of way. As this simple, soft, gentle kind of person. But as we find in this story today, as we're going to read in this story, her response to the angel Gabriel when he comes and brings this announcement to her about what God is asking her to do. Her response is, a, is an act of trust to say, let it be to me as the Lord has said. Let the Lord's word be fulfilled in me. I am the Lord's servant, she answers. Let it be to me as you have said. And that trust that she express expresses is an act of rebellion it's an act of rebellion it is this moment in luke chapter one that god launches the counter rebellion in this world against sin and death where eve and adam rebel against god in the garden mary's act of trust becomes a counter rebellion against that and in many ways, she becomes the anti-Eve in this story. So we're going to dig into this passage a little bit today. The introduction that we're given uh, of Mary is that. It's just simple, that she's from Nazareth in Galilee. The angel appears to her. She's engaged to be married to Joseph and that she's a virgin. And that's all that we get about Mary. Okay, we're not given any kind of backstory about her. The Gospel of Matthew uh, tells us about the genealogy of Joseph and puts the family kind of in that larger perspective of the grand story. But we're not given much character development about Mary. And the truth is that happens over and over in the Gospels. People that become key figures in the Gospels, they meet Jesus and when we meet them, we're not really prepared for what kind of role they're going to play because the Gospels don't really bother with any character development of these key figures. We're not given that built-in backstory for them. And the same is true with Mary. For most people, we pick up their story somewhere around five minutes B.C., right before Jesus is about to move into this story, right before Jesus comes into the scene that's where we pick up most people's stories throughout the gospel and that's the way it should be that's the way it should be with mary because this isn't her story and this story is not about her the story always begins when jesus steps into it 
The story always begins at the moment when Jesus steps into it. And the same is true for you. The same is true for you. Who you were, where you were, what you were before Jesus is not the story. You are not defined by that. That is not the center of the story. The story begins when Jesus steps into it. For some of you, today might be the day that your story begins. Everything else that's led up to this moment of when you embrace him as your savior, when you surrender yourself to him like Mary, this answer of surrender and this answer of trust. That says, I give myself to you. For some of you, your story is going to begin today and everything else that has led up to this is just prologue. The backstory doesn't matter. What matters is what happens when Jesus steps into it and transformation is possible for you. Redemption is possible for you. Forgiveness is possible for you. Yeah, but you don't know what I've done. That's not what we're talking about. It's not about what you've done. It's about what Jesus has done. It's about what Jesus accomplished for you on the cross through his sacrificial death, offering you forgiveness for your sins. It's what Jesus accomplished through his resurrection from the grave, offering you new life in him. The old you is gone and the new you is born. You are born again, as Jesus said. You are born again through the grace of Jesus Christ. That's your story. That's what defines you. For some of you, you need to embrace that today. We had a friend last night. We had the uh, Christmas party, uh, the, the Love Chapel Hill Christmas community dinner last night. And we were at the foundry. And, and as you know, the foundry is, is an old uh, church there. And so here we are in the middle of, of this party and their table sets up, set up and there's food and there's like, you know, lights everywhere and music playing. And a friend of ours comes to me in the lobby there and says, I need to get saved. I need to be saved. And I was like, well, we can do that right here. <laughs> like now's the time. Let's do this. And he said, can we go up to the altar? And so we went up to the altar in the middle of the Christmas party. And I know people were looking at me like, what is going on over there? But right there, we knelt down in the middle of a Christmas party. And he gave his life to Jesus. Today's where the story turns. Today's where the story really actually begins. Everything else is prologue. If you want that today, if you want that new life that is offered, through the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it's yours because he won it for you and he offers it to you. Come and grab us if you want to talk through that and you want that to be your experience as well. The angel Gabriel appears to Mary and he tells her what is going to be accomplished through Jesus Christ. He tells her how the story is going to turn for the history of humanity through this person of Jesus Christ, through this child that she is going to deliver. He comes to her and he says, you will conceive and give birth to a child and you will call him Jesus. One of my favorite Christmas songs uh, used to be Mary, Did You Know? And then while we're on a meme kick this morning, let's see this one too. Mary, did you know? Yes, Gabriel told me everything. 
The internet ruined Christmas. <laughs> well done. Thank you. All right. <laughs> so now I hear that song. I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, no, no, I'm right. All right. <laughs> but Gabriel tells her this, tells her exactly what is going to happen and the hope of that name that he mentions. And you will call him Jesus. And you will call him Jesus. What a name. What a name. This reminds me of, of uh, a key turning point in the story of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is the first book in that classic children's series, The Chronicles of Narnia. And, and, and if you haven't read that before, you should do that. You should do that for your soul and for your spirit and for your heart. Okay, just do it. And your mind. Um, you need that. So in this key turning point, we get introduced to the central figure of the whole story. It's the king, this lion, whose name is Aslan. And the first time his name gets mentioned in the book, one of the characters is telling the four children about this, right? And so telling uh, Peter and Edmund and Susan and Lucy about this figure of Aslan. And the way C.S. Lewis describes that moment is so beautiful he says that as soon as they hear that name, there's just something about hearing the name that it awakens a response in each one of them. Peter, it says, suddenly felt courageous and adventurous when he heard the name. Susan felt like she had just heard a beautiful strain of music. Edmund, who the story tells us, has already in his heart decided to turn against his brother and his sisters and betray them Edmund when he heard the name it says he suddenly felt a terror in his heart and Lucy I love Lucy Lucy says the the, the I didn't mean to reference <laughs> I was feeling it too man I was feeling that moment. Oh, man. All right. I do love her. Okay. She's great. But her response, it says, for her, it felt like she had just woken up on the first morning of summer holiday and realized that she had the whole summer ahead of her. It's beautiful the way they describe, the way C.S. Lewis describes that response just to the name. And the same thing happens for us as the name of Jesus gets in, introduced into the story here through Gabriel. You will conceive a child and you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The Lord saves, amen. There is something about that name, that beautiful name of Jesus. The history of the world hangs on this name. Martyrs throughout history have laid down their lives for it, for the sake of that name. Sinners have found forgiveness in it. The sick have found healing in it. The dead have been called into life by it. Slaves have found freedom in it. Addicts have found liberty in it. Doubters have found their faith in it. And at the mention of this name, hell trembles and hearts sing and heaven opens wide its gates. There is nothing like this name of Jesus. There's nothing like this name of Jesus. 
Mary's response when she's told this, when this is revealed to her, she answers back with a very logical question. It's a really good question. All right. Her response at first is this. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? How will this be since I am a virgin? And then the angel Gabriel explains to her that she will conceive through the power of the Holy Spirit so that the child that is born through her will be called the Son of the Most High God. And he gives this explanation to her in it. Mary's question, I want to pause here for just a minute because it relates to something that we talked about uh, two weeks ago when we were talking about the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah also has a question in, in the moment where Gabriel tells to him, comes to him and tells him that he and Elizabeth are going to have a child and it's going to be John, the pioneer, who will lead the way, prepare the way before Jesus, before the coming of the Messiah. And Zechariah also has a question. And Gabriel's response to Zechariah's question is completely different. Zechariah asks, how can I be sure? How can I be sure? And Gabriel's response is, you mean besides like the flaming angel that's standing in front of you right now? (laughs) What else are you looking for? Right? But Gabriel's response is, because you doubted and because you did not believe, until your son is born for these next nine months, until your son is born, you're going to be silent. Your mouth is going to be closed and you're not going to be able to speak. And it was true. And Zechariah could not speak until the birth of John the Baptist. And the first thing he did when his mouth was open, poetic song of praise. So what's the difference here? How come Zechariah is kind of given this judgment of silence because of his question? And Mary is given an answer to her question. What's the difference? What's the difference? I think the difference is this. I think Mary's question is one of logistics. All right, it's a pretty good question. All right. How is this going to happen? But it's not a question of, am I, can I be sure this is going to happen? It's not a question of doubt. That's what Zechariah's question is. He's got all the proof standing in front of him, and yet still in the midst of that, he doubts. Mary's is not like that. That's not what her question is like. Embedded in Mary's question is this sense of trust. How will this happen? I believe you, but how is it going to happen? How will this be? I want to challenge you today. You you hear us say this all the time. We repeat all the time that God is not afraid of your questions. We encourage your questions. We want you to ask them. God wants you to ask them. And even in the question itself, there is this hint of faith that says, God, I'm asking you this question because I believe you might have the answer to it. And there is a declaration of faith even in our questions. I want to encourage you to keep asking your questions but i want to encourage you to take the next step beyond that beyond just asking your questions i want you to do this ask questions of your questions ask questions of your questions ask this what is at the root of my question is it a hunger for knowledge 
or is it a lack of trust? Is it a hunger for knowledge or is it a lack of trust? And I want to challenge you with this. What will you do with the answer that you're given? When you ask your questions, what are you going to do with the answer that you are given? At some point, you have to respond. At some point, you have to respond to the light that you have been given. Are you going to respond with trust? Are you going to continue in disbelief? And are you going to continue in doubt? I want to give a quick shout out to our friend Gabby Wigington, who leads Reasonable Faith. Is Gabby in here right now? There she is. Awesome. Gabby, thank you for leading that for us and for creating a space where people can come and can search through those questions, not in a place that is, that is safe for the questions, but also that helps people dig into the answers. So I, I appreciate you leading that. We really appreciate the role that that plays in the life of our church here. But I want to challenge you guys with that. What are you going to do with the answer that you've been given? How are you going to respond? Dig at the root of your question. Dig at the root of your question. And at some point, you have to respond. Yes or no? Yes or no? Reason does not eliminate faith. So, Mary's answer is this. When he tells her that, Mary responds with this. I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. May your word to me be fulfilled. I love this moment of trust and this moment of surrender. She does not have all of the answers yet. She doesn't know everything that's going to happen. But she responds with a sense of trust. And in this way, she is, like I was saying earlier, a kind of an anti-Eve. And we've got this moment set up, a difference between her response that we have in this moment and what we find in the garden when, when Eve and Adam are both tempted in the garden. Eve's response in that moment when she is tempted, when she's told and she's asked that question of did, did, the God, did God really say that you couldn't eat from that? Did God really say that you would die if you ate from that tree? And is tempted with this promise that she can become an equal with God, that she could become like God. Eve's response of doubt leads to insurrection. And sin enters into the world in that moment. And death enters into the world through the fall of Adam and Eve. Eve's response of doubt leads to insurrection. I could be the Lord's equal. And did he really say I would die? Now compare that to Mary. Mary's response of trust leads to surrender. And her response is, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. It's the opposite response. It's the complete opposite. And in Advent, Mary launches the counter-rebellion against sin and death through this radical act of trust. And she shows us that the way of Jesus is a holy rebellion against the way things are. The way of Jesus is a holy rebellion against the way things are. It might make you uncomfortable for us to associate this word rebellion with Christianity and with the way of Jesus. But this past week came across a news story uh, on NPR that was talking about this Bible that is in the Museum of the Bible 
in Washington, D.C. And it's this one particular exhibit that has stirred up a lot of interest and excitement. And the reason is this. It's a Bible that was created and edited for slaves in the 1800s. It was used in England. It was used in America. And designed specifically for slaves. Designed to convert slaves to Christianity. And then to disciple them into Christianity. But here's the thing about this Bible. It's been heavily edited to remove what they said. This this is the wording. To remove any reference that might incite rebellion or stir up a longing for liberation. There it is. The Bible that you see in this picture is quite a different Bible from the one that you hold in your hands. The Bible that you hold in your hands has approximately 1,200 chapters in it, somewhere around that. This Bible has just over 200 chapters total. 90% of the Old Testament has been removed and 50% of the New Testament. Why? Because the way of Jesus is a rebellion against the way things are. Because the way of Jesus and this faith that we have been called into because of the birth of this man named Jesus incites rebellion and it stirs up a longing for liberation. That's what's possible for every single one of us because of this moment and because of this beautiful name of Jesus. What Gabriel introduces to Mary comes to a point of culmination as Jesus is seated with his disciples around the table on their last night together. And he's sharing this meal with them and he begins to reveal to them how it is that he is actually going to live into this name that he's been given. This beautiful name of Jesus, meaning the Lord saves. He takes the bread that is on the table and he breaks it. And he says, this bread represents my body that is broken to set you free. And he takes the cup that is on the table. And he says, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant. My blood poured out for the salvation of the world. It was not lost on them that the meal that they were celebrating was to remember When God led his people up and out of Egypt, this moment of deliverance where God raises up Moses and leads them out of slavery and into freedom. And Jesus is telling every one of us today that he has come to launch a counter rebellion. One that stirs up in us longing for liberation. And he's the one who can fulfill that. If you want to embrace that today and embrace what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross, what he has accomplished for you, 
if you want to step into this story that always begins with Jesus, then we invite you to come and to share in this meal. There'll be two locations, one on this side, one on this side. If you need a gluten-free option, that will be available for you right here. As you come forward, tear off a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup. As we say here, no crumbs in the kingdom. All right. Don't tear off a little tiny piece of bread. Tear off a big old chunk. All right. Grace enough to choke on. This is our freedom. This is our liberation. This is the counter rebellion against sin and death. Come and be a part of it. Amen.